Blog Talk Radio. Because we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers number one. Yes, we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers number one. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Balred Radio. My name is Matt Weston. Tonight, I'm joined by the biggest, fattest, and drunkest one of them all, BFD. Hey, how's it going? Woo! Yeah. And a season it's party! Been... <laughs> um, yeah, I've, been, I've done, I think, three cake stands. Uh, it's lasting 10 minutes. My shirt's covered right now. Nice. I have to actually go. I'm going to go to the front door and pick something up, but we can continue chatting as I stroll through the house. Yeah. And if you so? know what we're doing tonight, <laughs> what we're doing tonight is the end of season award show. And uh, BFD, did you know that the 2017 season is officially over and done with? I did know that. I don't know what gave me that sneaking suspicion, but I kind of figured that out after the Super Bowl. And then I turned the TVs on, and there was no more foosballs, and I had a giant sad. Yeah, so what have you been doing on Sunday now that football's over? Are you in a church? Have you you found your faith? Are you in the farmer's markets and buying salmon, you know, grown in, in koi fish ponds? Uh, what have you been up to? Oh, <laughs> just basically the same old crap. What can I say? I lead a very unexciting, unadventurous life. Yeah, I've just been reading a lot lately and exercising and just waiting for the sun to come out and going to bed early, um, watching Kim Burns of Vietnam War. So yeah, my life is uh, probably not as exciting as yours is at the moment, but once that sun comes up, things will be all right. Ooh, I haven't watched, uh, been watching that. I, is that. Has that series been good? Oh, it's spectacular. I cried like seven different times. Yeah, my, my dad was a Vietnam, Vietnam War veteran. He was in the Navy, and a bunch of my uncles served, and a couple of them came back pretty dad done broken. Yeah. I, I read books by Jim O'Brien. I read three of his about it and some stories. You know, always interesting ones to me is whenever you know, they come back and, you know, they're just in a car every night. It's a Springsteen song you know, over and over again. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. That was, uh, I'm, I'm glad I wasn't there. I'll just put it that way. That Especially in the Army. Oh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my last thought on is I remember, like, you know, being in, you know, like, college growing up, and people around my age would say, you know, I wish I lived in the 1960s. It had been so much fun than that. Like, you know, if I lived in the 1960s, I would have gone to school, got out, and then got drafted and been out walking around the jungle, you know, trying not to I think it would have been a whole lot of fun. I'm not cool enough to sit there and take out your draft card, you know. Yeah, and that's why my dad was in the Navy, because, you know, by then, you know, this was uh, mid-60s, by then, you know, everybody kind of knew what was going on, especially, you know, we grew up poor, and uh, and his friends, you know, stuff's happening to his friends, he's like, you know what, I'm just going to enlist in the Navy, because, hey, I'm not going to be on the ground, so mm-hmm. there was strategy there. Yeah, yeah, I've been there, right? but anyways, I guess uh, the one thing is what's happened this season, that is, for example, the Texans fan is that the season's been over to Sean Watson, so we could have done the season review show back in 
over. And we, we carried on. We carried the fire. We made it through all 17 weeks. But as soon as the season ended, it turned completely into, well, everyone's talking about the season. Uh, the Texans are done playing. Let's talk about the offseason. And, you know, we made a point, you know, I tried to emphasize as well that, you know, football is really good. Simple playoffs is a lot of fun. Uh, even though this dumb team isn't playing football, you know, there's still a lot of games there to change and all that. So now the Super Bowl's ended, and I've had some time to write and go back and think about things. We can do things like this, which is, you know, kind of review the entire Texas season of this past year. Yep. So, before, but right before we do that, Brian Cushing was officially released today. Uh, the Texans now have $63 million in cap space, and you know, they have the opportunity to make some other cuts like Lamar Miller, uh, Derek Newton, and Queen Jackson as well. So we don't know what's going to happen currently there. And they made about like $7 million in cap space before it's all over. But uh, are you going to miss Brian Cushing as the bloody nose, you know, expletive yelling that Marshawn Lynch is a football player? Uh, in some ways, I'm going to miss the original version of Brian Cushing. Uh, you know, he's the truth is, is he has not been a very good football player in the last couple of years. He, he hasn't. He hasn't been an impact player in several years. So, you know, in, in limited time, he's okay. But he's, you know, once we got, um, you know, Bernardrick McKinney especially, you know, it was pretty clear that Brian Cushing was, was way on the decline at that point. So it's not the sort of thing where I'm going to really miss him at this point because he's kind of been a, a shell of himself uh, since the second knee injury. So, you know, he he was a good player for a while. He was a very good linebacker for a while. Uh, really, his best skill seemed to be jumping at the on top of the pile after the play was done. Uh, so I I don't know. There's he had his moments. I mean, that interception against uh, San Diego to save the game uh, in what, what was that 2013? That was, yeah, spectacular play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Monday night game. Late game, so he had his moments, but he just he is he had he had been done as a player for a couple of years, Matt. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, I think his best year he's probably had since his knee injury to the sixteen. Like you know, last year he can rush the passer a little bit, he's a good image tackles, you know, stopper. But if you got him anywhere outside space, he's been bad for a few years. It really does suck about his knee injuries because they weren't like it wasn't like he's riding on ACL horn. He had Matt Slauson cut him from behind against the Jets in my football that took him out in 2012. And then the year 2013, Jamal Charles cut him, and you know, that was a car accident. And so, you know, he probably would have been a better player who things can happen for longer. But, you know, he was very good. He was a lot of fun to watch. It. But, you know, like, guys like diehard Chris really loved him, especially because he was, like, the only mean guy on a team full of so many nice, you know, gentlemen and that sort of thing. And uh, so he, you know, he was a fan favorite in that way. I think he was probably more revered than he was because of the player, but he was still, you know, a really good football player when he was healthy. Yeah, but it's funny that we say that, then you go back and you look at his, his counting stats, and stats are important. And he just did not put up counting numbers. You know, he, he after the, his rookie year, he did not create a lot of turnovers. He didn't get to the quarterback very well. He just was kind of there a lot of the time. And I think that, you know, we go back and look at, yes, he was the mean guy, but he wasn't really overly productive mean guy. Um, you go back and you look at that draft when he was taken. You know, I mean, there was a lot of us. I mean, it was like, you know, MDC, Tim, a lot of us hated the Brian Cushing pick because he was really a pretty bad linebacker in college, believe it or not. His uh, tackling was terrible. 
He didn't do a whole lot. He had a tendency to really be exposed on the big stages. And all of a sudden, when he became a Texan, he was tackling and rapping, and he he became a lot different of a player, especially his rookie year, where all of a sudden it's like, wow, this is not the guy I saw on tape. But then as the years progressed, he kind of went back to being that guy who, who wasn't lining up his tackles well with poor form. Uh, he, he was much better than I expected him to be as a pro. But if you go look at that draft, he was the best pick, really, to make it that position. Yeah. There's nobody else there. You can go back and say, oh, well, Ralphie in the sixth round, then he's going to be a Hall of Famer. Sure, you can say that, but really, that draft would just turn out to be so bad that Brian Cushing was a very solid pick, and, and props to uh, Rick Smith for that one. Yeah, I think you're. I agree with what you're saying. I do think you're selling him short on his tackling ability because that was what he best. I think he was a. He didn't. He didn't miss a whole lot of tackles. He uh, he had the ability to take on guards even at like you know his smaller size, and he was a you know, really good between the tackles. You know, run stopper for a while. So other stuff he had no and, and fumbles and that sort of thing. You don't see a whole lot of that from inside linebackers as well. Too. And you're also kind of like banking on the offense making mistake and. That's also part of you know being not a very good coverage guy too, where you're not gonna you're not, he can't really play you know from the middle of the field to the sideline all that well, um, especially after you know 2013 too. Yeah, and the other way, I mean, just looking at his stats in 2009, his rookie year, he had four of his eight career picks, and he had four of his 13 and a half uh, career sacks. So, and he had his only safety. So, and when you look at his numbers, he was a very good player his freshman year. Outside of that, I, I don't know. I, I think he was fine. Yeah, okay. Uh, the other thing, the, there were sort of things that happened. One was that Dwayne went on Arian's podcast, and I like Arian Foster, you know, retiring and pretty much just being, I like he just, you know, this regular person with the podcast, and I enjoy his, his try to become, you know, the next Joe Rogan. And he had Dwayne Brown on his podcast. I'm really kind of opened up and gave his side as far as what happened, his relationship with the Texans. And even if they traded him, I really kind of sold that part of it short. Where I didn't think the you know, tensions were that bad, that he wanted to get out of there that badly. I didn't even understand why, like, the things got that bad. I thought it was just a, purely a contract thing, but there was a lot more to it as well. Uh, what was your biggest takeaway from that interview that, the, that he had on Aaron Foster's show? I mean, there was a lot. There, there was a lot to kind of digest to that interview. Um, you know, just kicking it off, the start of the interview, where Dwayne Brown was kind of, you know, Foster growing up where there wasn't a whole lot of racism and, and Dwayne Brown, you know, growing up in the heart of the Confederacy in Virginia. And, you know, just even that discussion was just fascinating, kind of the different lives those two guys had. And, you know, Dwayne Brown saying things like, you know, I'm, I'm a large guy, and so I scare people, and I have to always watch that. I mean, I, I just, I guess part of me is, you know, growing up in Texas, I've seen plenty of that kind of crap in my life. But just to, to hear it from that side and the way that he was kind of talking about it, like he has to change his personality so other people don't take him the wrong way. I mean, how crappy would that be? So that that mm-hmm. even just starting off that interview, you know, it's going to be pretty deep because you know what it's going to be about eventually, right? Uh, uh, kind of not remembering your original question and going off on that tangent. But what, there were just so many things. I mean, is it really surprising? You know, we heard one side. I get it. We heard one side of it, that we heard Dwayne Brown's side. But is there any kind of, like, evidence that this isn't how Rick Smith treated him? I mean, is there anything at all that kind of would contradict, you know, when you, when you look at how, number one, secret the team is, number two, the poor communication. You know, we see, saw that between Rick Smith and Bill O'Brien. 
when you kind of see it and you put it all together, it's like, you know, I'm thinking Rick Smith just really wasn't that smart of a guy. And I really liked what Foster and, and Brown were talking about. Like, this is not how you treat employees. I mean, we're, we're grown-ass men. Treat us like we're that. Instead of, like, being secretive and, and kind of, you know, this guy gets one set of rules and this guy doesn't kind of thing. And, you know, the J.J. Watt where he got renegotiated uh, with two years left on his contract. So I, there, that whole interview was fascinating to me. Um, uh, it was not the sort of thing I would normally spend my time on, but that was a well-spent uh, 90 minutes of my time listening to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know like podcasts, but I still want to do other things. I'm, I really enjoy like a three-hour one to sit there if you're watching any video. Uh, it's good to do. But yeah, and I, the thing that I kind of thought about whenever the secret tenants and the Rick Smith thing where nobody, he wasn't really up front with the players and that sort of stuff, I wonder how much of that is just kind of like what goes along with the job maybe in a way. Or if you are the general manager, it makes it a lot harder to cut guys and trade guys. And you make those decisions if you have a really good relationship at all with these guys rather than them just being, you know, just kind of on from the chessboard uh, to make a good football team. So I wonder if that's just kind of a job, you know, because you, you don't hear a whole lot about, like, general managers and players having, you know, great relationship and that sort of thing. You hear about it with the coaches and the players and necessarily the front office. And so that's part of it, too. But, it, you know, it's also one of those things as well where you would think it would be, like, a better place to be if from the owner to the GM to the coach to the player, the entire, you know, relationship going up. Is a is a good one where you can talk to the general manager, you can talk to the owner if you have anything at all going on, rather than it being you know this kind of uh, this kind of like you know closed doors, you know White House tape sort of deal that they had there, based off Browns' responses. Yeah, and, and I, I, I I like your take on that because here's the way that I would look at it: is I, I've been in management for, I mean, since I was in college, I was in a management position, so it's something I'm, I'm used to dealing with people and used to dealing with people on that sort of level. And I think there is ultimately, <laughs> you either treat people with respect or you don't. I think when you're secretive, and because I, I never even thought about this with the players, like why wouldn't you know the GM say, hey, you know, this is your yearly review. What, you know, does that not happen with the players? Apparently not. So to me, it's so important if you're management that you set expectations and communicate with your players. It does not matter if I might have to cut you because you're not living up to expectations. I'm at least going to be upfront and honest about it and say, hey, you're not meeting my expectations. Sorry. You know, here either, you know, if you want to go to classic management, here's a plan for you to improve, or you say, okay, you know, we just, you, you didn't meet the plan, you're not doing what we need you to do, sorry. But it, you, there still needs to be a relationship there. I don't see how you can be the general manager of a team and not have a certain level of relationship with your players. I get it. It's a lot of dudes. It's a lot mm-hmm. of different personalities. You might not like the guy from Jersey, but, hey, you got you to gotta deal with people, and I – you know, when you hear those two guys talk, Foster and Brown is, you know, saying, hey, you know, this is how I deal with my employees. I could not imagine being a GM of a football team with all my management experience and the importance of that and the importance of knowing my people and turning around and just being that icy and cold. I could not. That is just every ounce of my being says that is wrong, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I would, take, I would have to go back and kind of, I guess, read more about the relationship between the – the general manager and the players. Because I know, for example, like in Carolina, they all love Marty Herney there because he gave them all huge extensions and paid everybody, but then he completely drew the team. And then you had Gettleman come in and was able to have the team, but then he was, you know, kind of making some aloof decisions and 
he uh, rescinded you know, Josh Dorman's franchise tag last second. D'Angelo Williams, he's a snake. D.J. Smith said something similar as well, too. But they didn't like him as fun, but you know, he built a 15-1 football team and went to a Super Bowl. So I don't know if the right answer to that part of it. It was just kind of, it just kind of strange. And I, you know, you would think where you could do both at the same time. But I do think there has to be some level of distance to make the most efficient decisions from a new general manager perspective between you and the players. Um, the other thing about it that you know I, I took away was just like the fan in general, where we kind of we saw with Andre Johnson, where whenever he stopped at the forty catches thing. Uh, that you know, Bill O'Brien told him it was, you know, like Cecil Shorts or whatever. I think, I, yeah, I think the, you know, the number two was Cecil Shorts after you know, Johnson left Indianapolis. He wasn't good, but you would think that he could take a pay come and be a place from the team. But that's not really the point. The point is, never he left, like fans were glad he was gone away. They said he was a that, and they absolutely hated him whenever he signed with Indianapolis when he thought playing for the luck and playing for the Colts was the best chance from the win. And, you know, he wasn't that good, even good for him at all. That was what he thought was, you know, available to him. And, you know, the same kind of thing happened in Dwayne Brown's role, too, where the fans don't like Brown because he held out without knowing, you know, his side of the story, you know, really well at all. They didn't like his protest, you know, protest that's, you know, your opinion completely. But whenever he got traded, everybody immediately turned to, you know, Dwayne Brown's declining. He's 33. He's not like, good the Texas office without him. And all that's not true. The Texans were awful blocking the left side and running game without air. They had the worst pass blocking offensive line in football this year. And they explained Brown wasn't there. They started Kendall Lamb week one offensive tackle. They had to start Jeff Allen at left tackle. And Brown would have done a huge thing to make up for that. He wanted to play the rest of his career in Houston. And it didn't happen because of his relationship. But I just don't like that about – I don't know if it's fans in general, Texans fans. I couldn't tell you. But I don't like that with fans where because a guy makes a decision – or things don't necessarily work out, they immediately turn on that player because he, he ends up playing for somebody else, even whenever it's things that are outside of his control completely. And then whenever he comes back and he retires, then everybody loves him again. But in the moment, like, I just don't, I just don't like it. I don't like that sort of rationale. And that also, you know, people will go and buy and say this to players and this and that. I really don't like that as well either. You know, just enjoy the guy did for the city and the team and, you know, appreciate that. It doesn't have to become so, you know, vehement that quickly. Yeah, one thing I've noticed in my old age is that um, very much like clockwork, players will turn on the fans. I don't think it's a special thing for Texans fans. I think that there's just there just is this kind of de facto going back to that the that the loyalty of the team is unidirectional. It's everybody has to be loyal to the team, uh, and as soon as that player shows that lack of loyalty to the team, then it's all of a sudden they're they're the devil, right? And, and we see this consistently, even with the, you know, if you say anything bad about Bill O'Brien on, on Battle Red blog, people get really upset about that. It's not just, it's beyond personal. And it's because you just can't not badmouth this, this deity-like thing that's called the Houston Texans. And so I think that's ultimately what happens is that player was not loyal to my team. I hate that player. Yeah. And it's, it's, Long, it's always been like that. This is not, you know, there, there are historical moments. But, I mean, all you have to do is look at, you know, Matt Schaub, you know, yeah. getting threatened when he was playing four ball in 2013, right? It's it's really crazy. And, and it, you know, fan is short for fanatics. And that's kind of your perfect example right there, Matt. Mm-hmm. And they also cheered whenever he got injured in the Rams as well, too. It was rolling around right. and paying me her foot. And then came in through the six and 
at that moment, I believed in, you know, Lord above, because that was just so just beautiful and spectacular. But, yeah, I, and I guess part of it is just that the way I can sports, I guess, is different, where I don't have, like, a like a, a group of my friends where I go watch the same team and go watch the game, you know. Like, we only have one sports team where I live with the Spurs, and I'm not a Spurs fan at all, so I don't really have that aspect of it. And so my one fan base, like, I'm ingrained in this is Houston one. It's purely online. I don't I have friends who are Texans fans who I speak to, but I don't live close at all anymore. But it's not, like, our conversations aren't like that at all. I've never seen this stuff firsthand in person. It's just much what I see on the Internet, which I think is, you know, how a lot of people feel you know, personally, too. I just don't. I really confront it all, whatever. And uh, so, I don't know. It's, it's, weird. it's weird. I don't like and I wish people would just, you know, enjoy the players while they're here. And then because of differentiating circumstances, there's no reason to you know, completely turn their back on them. Uh, because most of the time it's not warranted. So the shop thing wasn't Foster. Wasn't, I mean, I don't mean Foster. Andre Johnson wasn't. Dwayne Brown wasn't at all either. So I don't, I don't really get that part of it. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing is that this is not personal. This is a business. If these players make that decision, where if Dwayne, Dwayne Brown wants another payday because he's he's getting up there in age, he's only going to get one more contract and. Good for Dwayne Brown, you know, good for the player. How about we cheer on the players and help these guys, you know, succeed and all that? Because the owners, they're already rich, right? Mm -hmm. They're already making money hand over fist by owning an NFL franchise. How about let's root for the little guy? And, yes, Dwayne Brown is the little guy. Yeah. And and also, you know, they traded, you know, Jack to re-sign Andre Howe, who's a fine player, but they didn't even re-sign that point in time. They re-signed, they, I mean, they extended Andre Howe, C.J. Fedorowicz, uh, they re-signed Ryan Griffin. They also extend Jay Prosh. Uh, that money could just go on like guaranteed between Brown, you know, like a, a three-year, $30 million deal. People in there until he's 35 or so, 36. And tackles can be really good in their third, in their third, to 36, like Whitworth short, showed last year. And, you know, a variety of other tackles, too, uh, that once they, you know, understand their place and how to play the game well, Keep a little bit of loss of speed that happens along with it. And I think Brown's one of those guys who's going to be good for another three years, four years or so. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, I think what you saw was really a kind of just chilly, uh, I'm sorry, a childish, silly act from Rick Smith. It was just he, he just had to, he had to win that battle. And that's what it became. It became not a matter of the best decision for the football team, it was going to be who's going to win that battle. Because at this point, clearly, Dwayne Brown had the uppity tag slapped on him, and, and you just can't allow that to happen, I guess, if you're Rick Smith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the the last thing that's happened since we last spoke, AJ Fedoris is concerned Mueller retirement. He didn't really play at all last year. He had two concussions, you know, really quickly. Uh, Ryan Griffin also missed the rest of the concussion as well, too. Do you think he's actually going to retire? And uh, are the tech going to be you know, worse off without him there. I think he should retire. I think at some point, you know, he, he's played out his, his rookie contract, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. that it's just he should be done. That's it. That's, that's too many concussions already. He's going to be battling uh, traumatic brain injury the rest of his life. He's going to be battling the CTE. It's just time. You have to, have to understand that the risk is no longer worth the return once you get to a certain level. And it goes back to what's going to happen with football when you have so many guys, you know, who, who are retiring early because of concussions. That wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. But I think that he has to he has to retire. As far as the Texans, it doesn't matter. It, he needs to do it for himself. Yeah, I mean, I 
Oh, I mean, I don't know what he's going to do. It would make sense if he does. I don't think you can say for sure he'll have CTE because of the concussions he had last year, but it opens the door for that being a possibility. Um, and the one thing about, too, Fedora's is such a weird player where, like, he's been pretty okay, you know, like, as a bucker. He's been pretty okay as a receiver. Like, a lot of his routes he catches are just kind of, you know, catching in the flat over and over again. He hasn't been efficient all as a player. Even if, like, you know, if he retires, we sad for a guy to have his career cut short. But I don't think he you know, makes Houston all that better of a, a team as well, too. I think kind of one of the reasons why he was kind of was it made their 2014 draft class look a lot better, resigning you know, Prosh and Hal and you know, Fedor. It's like, you know, Rick Smith. And I just don't, I just don't see, like, you know, I don't, I don't really think he was all that good. I don't think, like, there was, we were, he was never, like, really close to breaking out at all. As either. I think for sure on this team, like, you know, Steven Anderson's the best tight end that they have. He was frustrated. The doors is healthy and, you know, plays again next year. Yeah, and I agree with that. If if you're the Texans, you're probably looking to upgrade that position anyway. Um, mm-hmm. C.J. Fedora is, is really kind of the definition of a fungible guy. Yeah, I did like his, you know, American flag tattoo and all that, and, you know, he became a better blocker. And tight ends they always say that tight end next to quarterback is the hardest position to play, you know, as a coming out of the draft because you have to learn the entire passing side and the entire blocking side. And you have to deal with both, you know, aspects of that uh, blocking, you know, big defensive ends and trying to get open at fast linebackers. And there's a big adjustment period to it. Yeah. I, I'd also, yeah. Great point. So that's all, that's all the Texans news. Now we're going to go into, you know, the season portion show and what we're going to do is we're going to do an imaginary award setting uh, kind of like you know what I wrote last week except it's me a little bit more different a little bit more fun uh, so what happened was is that I came up with four uh, kind of I came up with four awards four awards and so we don't know what each other picked and so we're going to kind of go back and forth and what we have selected so the the first one I have here the the titles here for these awards are so lame because I didn't know you know what else to say. I, I jumped on this up uh, as I was eating dinner today. But so this is the first one is called a front five smashing, and it's the Texans used seven different offensive line combinations this year. Uh, they had, I believe, all the time I had eleven different offensive linemen take a snap. I think they made in twelve. So which of the Texans seven offensive line combinations was your favorite? And this can be either from just like a pure hilarity standpoint or you know skill standpoint. <laughs> Oh my God! I have a feeling we're, our questions are going to overlap a little, um, <laughs> because I mean, really, the areas that are comedy gold are just comedy gold. I mean, what can you possibly say otherwise? Uh, wow. Uh, which of the? Jeez, man, I don't even know how to answer, go about answering this one, Big Matt. Uh, I would say, I, I would say the one that included Jeff Allen at left tackle. Uh, especially when he had the three false starts in a row. I thought that that was just so so elite, and he played so well all game, and it gets to the fourth quarter, and Jeff Allen is, is false starting. and But he looked good, like the other three quarters. So I, I think that combination was, was my favorite. And I, I can't remember what it was across, but I think it was – what was it? It was Allen and then um, – oh, jeez. He was playing left guard. Martin was still there, yeah. Or was it? Or Manx was there for that game. I can't remember now which one. 
And Manx was either at center or guard, and then Clark at tackle. God, those are terrible. Jeez. I think I think oh that gosh. one was Jeff okay. Allen at left tackle, Theo at left guard, Nick Martin at center because Martin got injured in the Jacksonville game in week sixteen, and then Greg Manx at right mm-hmm. guard, and then Jacomini at right tackle. There you go. That's it. And Allen, I think, started three games left tackle this season too. Yeah, he started the last. I'm pretty sure it was the last three, wasn't it? Or two of the last yeah, three. They, no, they moved uh, Davenport back to left tackle to start the well, last right. two games, and he started like the three before right. that. Right. Uh, my my favorite offensive line combination was their week one starting offensive line combination because it was just so you know really stupid. Like not only was starting Tom Savage week one really dumb because I mean it was, and we all knew it was a bad idea and it wasn't going to work out. And but two, like if you have Savage as the starter, you have to have a good offensive line in front of them. You learned that the previous year when he started for you know two and a half games, so the guy can't pressure, he can't get the ball quickly. He needs all the time in the world to throw. And so, you know, do your best job you can to put together a competent offensive line, uh, which involves you know, paying Dwayne Brown uh, as part of that. They went out with Kendall Lamb as the week one opening starter at left tackle, and Kendall Lamb is the worst. Offensive tackle I've ever seen in my entire life. Like even as like a six offensive lineman, he's terrible. I've never seen him like actually make a successful block. And he's also like in the Kevin Johnson mold. He screams and yells throughout the entire game as he you know, completely you know and utterly fail, flails around the entire time. But yeah, that offensive line they gave up ten sacks in that game. It was uh, Kendall Lamb, Xavier Suofio, Nick Martin, Jeff Allen right guard, and Breno Giacomini tackle. And just like Giacomini and Kendall Lamb's starting at left tackle week one is just the most diabolical combination you can come up with to you know, completely rattle Tom Savage around. Yeah, especially you knew the Jaguars were going to get to the quarterback. I mean, with all their upgrades, you know, just getting Clay Campbell on that team was going to do you know, massive good to their pass rush. And, wow, I, it, I had maybe I blocked it out that Kendall Lamb started that first game at left tackle. Wow. Yeah, I think he gave up like wow. three or four sacks. And he was cut, what, week five or six? We cut him. And they brought him back and they come again, too, I think. <laughs> and he was cut yeah. in the summer, I think, or the year before. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's hard It's hard being lonesome. Uh, so what's your what's your first award that you got? Let me pull that bad boy up. Phrasing. Okay, so you wrote a post the other day about how the Texans – I should pull it up. Dang it, I should have had it pulled up. Sorry. It was basically – it was your, your regression to the mean post. And it was um, a look in, your look inside the numbers post when you looked at a bunch of things and how the uh, Texans regressed from 2017, or, you know, regressed after 2016 to 2017, how they were just so much worse in a lot of you know, ways, including one-score games. Of those, what was your favorite regression stat? Uh, it has to be that their DVOA was about the same and then their, their one-possession record, because they went 8-4 and four the year before, which isn't great, but they played in a bunch of close games because their defense was, you know, really good, and they were able to hold on and just barely enough and you know and kind of crawled their way through those football games and you know I read about the end of last year this guy saying that they have to upgrade at offense specifically because they're not going to win games like this probably again the the year after 
And that's kind of what we saw happen, you know, this year, but in more dramatic fashion without, with one, a bad defense and bad offense. But even when Deshaun Watson was healthy, I think a lot of people have said for sure that the Texans would have made the playoffs if Watson was healthy. And that's not true. They were far from that. Their defense was still bad. They were still having to score a lot of points to be in these games, which they had to do to even you'd be close, but they were still not going to be, you know, five and one and one score games, which a lot of these were going to be. So I don't think Houston made the playoffs even if Watson was healthy. And I think a lot of the reason because of that is just I couldn't see their – I was, you know, I think there's, they're going to lose a lot of close games. They're going to be 500 in those games. And they would probably end up going about, like, you know, eight and eight or so. But that was my favorite. Yeah. Like yeah, I, I, that would be my vote as well. It's just because it was so – you know, we talked about it early and often in 2016. It was just such a really lucky team when it came to those one-score games. And it was really kind of – funny and uh, rewarding in a way to have that bounce back because, you know, that's another one of those things. Oh, it's not luck. Well, yeah, but you can't be like this every year. I mean, things are going to change, you know, especially when you mm-hmm. have a sample size of 16 games, you know, certain trends aren't going to stay strong over time. And that was one of those things, just, you know, all the comments that we got about that one about, no, 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 that's not true. That doesn't matter to anything. And well, it did. Yeah, I mean, it was the same thing after 2013 where I said that Houston's going to bounce back to being, you know, I picked them to win seven games after winning two games because I thought Ryan Fitzpatrick was going to be a lot worse than he was. And the difference between Ryan Fitzpatrick and Matt Schaub was enormous, and they won nine games rather than two. But Bill O'Brien gets that label, completely rebuilding the franchise win. It was a really talented team, and the team was pretty identical in 2013 as it was in 2014 aside from Batrickies that played a lot of time, uh, but the the thing I do enjoy them you know, writing that post is that I can write this post now after writing it you know three or four different times. Houston, you know, where regression you know looked like it was going to play a role the following year, like the 2014 season uh, and like this season and like it's happening again next as well too. Is that nobody really argues those numbers at all anymore? I don't have anybody. There's nobody in the comments all saying, you know, I don't believe these regression numbers. This and that and that. And they're kind of like it's just been right so many times that people kind of accept them now, which is which is not taken, you know, four years or whatever of writing this article, are people and to finally have some sort of you know, common ground that it's a 16 game season and things fluctuate and you know just because you don't have the best football team you can make playoffs and the Dolphins are a really good example of that this year as well too and the Falcons were as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's good. You have to have a good fight. And I th- uh, you know, pray, thank you to you know, Bill Barnwell for teaching numbers when I was sitting in some awful computer <laughs> class when I was in school. Yeah, I, I summed this grandly into the class. Uh, next story here I have is called The Good Old Days. So Lamar, he kind of forget about the weird little things that happened this season because it, you know, it goes by really quickly and uh, you know, you kind of looking forward to next week over and over again. And all eight games is eight different weeks, and that's two months. And I don't really, you know, it's hard to remember this from you know, a week ago after you lived enough time. And so, uh, this year, for example, Lamar Houston returned a fumble for a touchdown. Kendall Lamb was the team's week one starting offensive left tackle. What this award is, uh, what's your, what's going to be like your favorite, like, work or memory you're going to have from this 2018 season that you're going to remember going forward? Um, the, the one that sticks out for me is the Deshaun Watson 
run against the Chiefs, the touchdown run, uh, it, that it was just such an, a, an act of art. It was beauty in football. It was unexpected. The stiff arm was beautiful. Um, you know, it kind of started the playoff. It was just a, a gorgeous stiff arm. I think that one for me is the big takeaway. He did a lot of other stuff, but that run was just – that run was otherworldly, Matt. Yeah, I didn't even – I missed that run live, too, because I was watching the game with some friends, and my head turned talking. And I turned around, and he's in the end zone. I'm like, what in the world just happened? Like, I had no idea that a quarterback could convert, like, a third and 19, let alone take off and run well, 43 yards for a touchdown. And my, the, one I'm, the one thing I'm really – Remember, one is the Tom Savage fumble streak, of course, but two is that <laughs> Jeff Allen, uh, three false starts in a row. Like, I've never, I've never seen one before. And then also it was that coupled with Apple dancing that, like, it was insanity. Like, I I was in the loony bin. I lost that point. And also just, like, Jeff Allen, just, like, slow progression, you know, sadness as he kept messing up and didn't understand. And the crowd getting into it more and more, and then Pineapple Man dancing even more after that. And then for Tom Savage to convert fourth and 19 was incredible as well. And then to throw interception double coverage immediately afterwards, oh, yeah. it was like the perfect cherry on that just poop Sunday. And so that's that's what I'm really going to remember just like those five plays of anarchy and that meaningless Texans time. No matter how bad this team is, like how boring they are on Sunday. Uh, there's all really fun and interesting and hilarious things that kind of happens with Houston whenever they're bad. They feel like bad in a completely, you know, worthless way. There, there's always something enjoyable once you come out of these terrible games, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you ready for my number two? Yeah. Phrasing. <laughs> okay. What's your, and we're going to call this the P.D. Faggins Memorial Award for the worst blown coverage of 2017? Uh, I mean, I, it has to be that New England game, right? When they allowed Tom Brady to throw like three 25 plus yard passes in a row because they kept running four. And so I guess, I guess it would have to be every time Houston played before because they had no idea to pass it over. They had cornerbacks that playing game cover the entire time. They had Marcus Gilchrist at strong safety. They hadn't played together for that long as that group, uh, you know, starting the way that they had. And they were trying to impose completely new coverage, and they could not pass anybody off, you know, at all. And what's kind of funny, too, about that is, like, even going back to 2014, Houston was terrible playing zone coverage when Romeo Cornell first came there. And it was largely in part to DJ Swearinger. you not understand, like, how to pick guys up once they're passing the team come with some man. Uh, completely after that point as well too. So I don't know. I guess it's any time you know Houston playing you know, cover four, and it's just also kind of strange like how bad they've been at playing zone coverage as long as they have. Yeah, and, uh, you're right. I, I mean, in my opinion, you're right in that it, it's got to be the New England game. I mean, Chris Hogan was invisible on the field. I mean, nobody knew where he was at at any point in time. It seemed like and mm-hmm. he was just getting wide, wide open. Not like by five yards, but like by 10, 15 yards at will against this. And, and you're right, it's because we can pass anybody off. They're, the communication on that back end was so bad. So it's that, that game, I, I, you, know, you think about the you know, memories from this season with like the last question. It's like, I always remember the time the Texans had no idea where Chris Hogan ever was. 
Yeah. Um, and even like losing Brandon Cook really silly. Like it happened a lot of times going down the middle. It's just like everything ran thing deep, there's somebody open. Yep. And I think that game too, they had a defensive DVA of negative like 10.3% or they played well. Also, you know, like having a fumble return for a touchdown and only a huge spike in your defensive DVA. And I kind of wish they made a DVA that removed all turnovers out of it and it was just kind of like your bare bones twice all the time too. But, uh, but yeah, like they just got, they got torched downfield and uh, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Uh, the next one I have here is called, this, this is the lamest name I came up with. Uh, the signature foul board and it's just, what's your favorite like stylistic slash ability player has? A couple of examples which are like a negative versions of it. Like, so this is you know, Kevin Johnson being unable to make a tackle, Jay Prosh, one-yard receptions, Azizu Fail not being able to stick onto a block at the second level. Or all but a positive way, what's, like, your favorite small little stylistic thing that certain player does that you more than the rest of it? Wow. Um <clears throat> I guess it would be, and I'm hoping this change. I still hope this change. But Will Fuller's ability to drop passes is is there is like a style component to it. It's like almost like a rehearsed skill. Uh, so that's going to be my answer. My uh, my favorite one, well, my, my like as a negative one, I guess you could call, it, is definitely Kevin Johnson giving up four completions in a row and then knocking down a slant on third and 13 and completely losing his mind and, or, or also doing the same thing and then turning around, there's a holding penalty there and then him losing his mind at the referee when it's obviously a holding penalty. That was my favorite one. But my, my positive one would be just watching Jadavion on Clowney uh, just pursue guys from the backside of the field as always just, oh, you know, just awesome. Cause you, Cause you have a running back who should be faster than this defensive end, but he is dead. And that was just like behind you, just like how horrifying it is to have this, you know, five two hundred ninety pound, just septum pierced, you know, blood splattered lunatic coming from behind you, and uh, and he, he's great at it. He knows the job. He's always moving. He's always looking to make tackles, make plays. And I think it's a really underrated part of him as a player as well too, just by like how hard he plays every possession. Yeah, that's a great example, and it's, there are so many this year of home. Clowney is, it gets to places he should not be, and he doesn't always make the play. I'm not, not saying it's a bad thing, not saying it's a negative, but when he's outrunning a defensive back down the field like he did to Jonathan Joseph at one – I can't even remember the play, but he was outrunning Jonathan Joseph down the field uh, after a play, that's scary because he's big. He's real big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think they gave him that – Either that pick six or the fumble recovery, as well too. Where like he just has the ball and it looks so small in his hand, and like he just kidnapped a baby, you know. Yep. All right. So my third one is the Andre Johnson Memorial Award for the best catch of the season. So uh, I, you know, I miss Andre Johnson so much, and uh, my. I wrote originally, you know, it was a Steelers one-handed catch, but I don't think so anymore. Now that I thought about it a little bit better, it has to. I think for me, it's the catch against the Jaguars 
or he burned Jalen Ramsey on that on that slant route right off the line of scrimmage where he beats him. Ramsey goes to catch up and he tries to outbody him around the catch point and he just slowly just melts down his legs as Hopkins catches a wide open touchdown pass. And Ramsey was just so upset and beside himself that he had the touchdown was just like how badly he got beaten by Hopkins. And so Hopkins, I think he he had like five catches on seven targets from ninety yards and touchdown against Ramsey that game. And Ramsey's five best cornerbacks in football. And that was just such a great route, such a great battle against such a great player as well, too. So that's, that was my favorite catch this year. All right, I'm just going to stick it with it simple and the one-handed touchdown catch against the Steelers. I'm just going to keep it simple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's from my – I don't know if you've ever seen any videos of Rodney Mullen skateboarding. But this guy who would just, just do manuals and was pretty much just ice skating on a skateboard. And that's what that DeAndre Hopkins reminds me of, where, like, the ball goes off each part of his body and then he just puts it back into himself. Yeah. All right, so the last one I have here is called the I'm Done Award. So what are you most wrong about this season? And this can be Texans related or not. Um, that's a good question. I think my first gut instinct is to say that Deshaun Watson was far better than I thought he would be, but I don't know who really, who honestly, you know, watched the game and thought that Deshaun Watson was going to go out and just, blow open doors like he did this year. I mean, you and I were both, you know, we're excited about him and we we're hopeful and optimistic, but, you know, we didn't expect what we saw from Deshaun Watson. And so I, I would say that's where I was wrong, but that one's like, I don't know who actually, you know, I guess when you look at it, that there's a certain level fan who is just blindly, wildly optimistic that the Texans are going to go 16-0 every year and that Deshaun Watson's going to throw for 8,000 yards. There's always that fan who, yes, they got it right, but I don't think that's like a realistic way to think about it. So that, yeah. to me, it was Watson. Uh, it's just he 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 also impressed me more with his ability to drive the ball down the field. He also, when he gets a little bit of a head start, he does a really good draw, job driving the ball down the field, and so that also impressed me uh, quite a bit. But really, he is about anticipation and throwing the receiver open, and those are two things that has like you know, continue to learn and evolve how I uh, look at quarterbacks. Those are two things that are really going to have to jump out at me. Throwing the purposeful back shoulder passes to keep the ball away from the defender and giving your guy the chance to win in a not classic form or way to do it, that, those are the passes that are truly special, and that's what he really excels at, Matt. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I out of after, after the draft I had, you know, Trubisky, Kaiser, and then Watson. I really liked Watson. I thought he's kind of gave me like a like immediately like a more athletic version of Alex. Those are the things that I kind of thought about whenever wrote about whenever he came out of Clemson was that you know he his arm strength his arm isn't the best. It's never going to be the best, but that doesn't matter because his anticipation's there, his ball placement's there, and whenever he puts everything that he can into the ball, he's able to push it downfield some. Though one kind of weird thing about Watson this year is we see a lot of those like sideline back shoulder fade routes that he was so good at Clemson. A lot of his field throwing came to the deep middle part of the field and also just kind of like forcing Hopkins on the right sideline as well too. But I had, you know, I, I was excited for him. I thought he was going to be good, but I had no idea he was going to be like this and nobody, you know, really did or should have as well too. Um, so my, my dumb ward, 
I had the Jaguars finishing third in the AFC South. I thought their defense was going to be a top ten, top ten, probably top five defense. I really didn't like their offensive game plan at all. And their offensive line ended up being a lot better than I thought it was. And that was a, a big reason for that. So I really just like – I really did appreciate uh, their offensive line this year. And I, and I didn't extrapolate that. I thought Boros seemed to be a lot worse than he was going to. And then putting their caution up the ball with, a run, with the run-the-ball defense saying works a lot better. And the second thing was taking so long to really enjoy the Philadelphia Eagles football team. I wasn't that big on Carson Wentz mainly because of you know, internet group thing and his touchdown rate and this and that. And he just, they just kept winning and kept winning. And then Nick Foles came in and then they kept winning. And it was kind of bad, kept winning. And then the Falcons playoff game happened. I was like, well, they can't play like that against Vikings. There's no way they're going to win next week. And then they beat the Vikings and then against the you know, Patriots. I thought it was going to be a close game, but they ended up losing. Of course, they won as well. So, so it took me like, you know, seven weeks to really enjoy what the Eagles did. All offensive lines eventually happened, but I was so wrong about them for so long. Uh, that's one of the things that I feel kind of uh, fortunate about. I don't know if like, because the Eagles have always been kind of my favorite AFC team, I mean, NFC team, I'm sorry. And uh, them, the Bears, the Niners, I kind of, you know, those three I've always had a big, you know, kind of following for. But I, I really like the, I really like the Eagles starting out the season. Um, uh, so here's my next one. Your Xavier Suafilo Memorial Award. Notice these are all memorial awards. I did that on purpose. <laughs> For the worst offensive lineman of the season, Matt. I mean, I I think it has to be Kendall Lamb as far as a bridge, like as like a meteor going through the sky of just terribleness. So it'd have to be him. But I think overall, you would say Brayo Jackini. But the thing about Jackini is he played 100% of the snaps as well, too. So I don't know. There's a lot of bad offensive linemen. But from an overall consistency-wise, Jackini, but as far as just like a how bad could you possibly have this in the world? Yeah, and, and – uh, Giacomini is mine and with the bullet just because he is – there is no aspect of the game that he just isn't terrible in. Like, it does – sometimes it doesn't even look like he knows what sport he's playing. He is an absolutely terrible offensive lineman. He is – he's dirty. I mean, also, on top of everything, else, yeah. he's a dirty player. So, yeah, I have absolutely no love for him. I just don't think he knows what he's doing out there. And to top it off, to top it off, after all that's said and done – he compliments crappy coaches. So uh, he's just, he is just clueless. So I, I'm so done with him. I never want to see him in a Texas uniform again. Yeah, I don't want to play football again. And it's really funny, too. I think one of like, the funniest things about football was the Seahawks on the line when they won the Super Bowl. And even the year before that, when they lost in the, in the NFC semifinal game, the, that offensive line was terrible. It was okay because Russell Wilson was so good at you know, breaking tackles, keeping plays alive and playing under pressure. And they could run the ball a little bit, but James Carpenter, J.R. Sweezy, Breno Giacomini, all three of those guys got huge contracts elsewhere, and all three of them were terrible. I know Giacomini and Carpenter went to the Jets, were awful there. Sweezy went to the Buccaneers and played like your one full season, if that, and was bad whenever he played there. And so I, I feel like that entire 
subplot was, you know, you won a Super Bowl, here's all this money because you won a Super Bowl. And I don't think there was any scouting or rationalization of decisions at all. And all three of those guys were just really bad. Yeah, you cut off weird there, so I didn't know if you handed it off to me. But, uh, yeah, no, this – yeah, especially that team. When you think of – oh, God. Dude, could you imagine if, if they had actually taken care of Russell Wilson's offensive line? Like, I, they, they tried. They they tried a couple of times. Man, if they'd ever given him any help, he would have been so much better of a quarterback for them. Well, that's what they're going to have to do now Uh-oh. because that's why they were okay. able to keep defensive core together. That's why they're able to have, you know, Thomas and Chandler and Sherman as long as they did as well with their, you know, their front too, because they didn't pay for their offensive line because of how good Wilson was. But I think you're going to see the second version of the box with Wilson at, you know, as a 29-year-old, 30-year-old, however at least. They have to invest in the offensive line a lot more, and we're going to see a different version of that team for the next, you know, five years or so. Let's see, more offensive-oriented. We're going to have to put the resources to that to keep alive. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, he's your easier, easily your best player. I mean, what the heck are you doing? He's one of the best players in the NFL. And I don't get it. I don't Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Tom Kevin. It worked for, for how it did. You, know, you, had, you had him and Marshawn Lynch were the two best tackle breakers in football at their positions, and you didn't need an offensive line really all that much with those two there. And also their skills are great, great tackles too. And, uh, and that keeping the defense together was more important. And, Time changes things, and your your money changes, and guys get older. And I think you're going to see a bit more of an impact and much more investments in their offensive line. If they're smart, this is what they do. But who knows what's going to happen up there? Right, right. So those are the the four awards I got. Do you have any other ones at all? That's all I did. I did four. You said four. I did four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. I don't know if you want to be overachieved at all. You know, you can be a nerd sometimes. That's true. Yeah, and I don't I don't know if I'm if the voices if the connection is breaking. Weird things have happened to me for like two weeks. My voice has been cracking occasionally, and I don't know what's wrong with me. Like I'm I'm too grown of a man to be in there having my voice cracked. But I've been I've been losing my mind for like two weeks. I'm blaming the air, the humidity here. But um, yeah, the the sound quality is a little weird. I don't the connection. I think it's my awful voice and this second period. That I'm going through. Okay. I, okay. <clears throat> yeah. It's it's terrible. Though. I hate I, I hate it right now. I have a couple other quick questions for the rest of the show. So the first one is: Would you consider season a success? Yes, because you have to look at the long term. I mean, you know, for a team that won, I don't know, who cares how many games this year. Uh, you have to look at it as a success because we finally found a franchise quarterback. Now, so what we do with that franchise quarterback, who knows? It'd be great to have a left tackle who's confident or competent, but, you know, we traded Helm for pennies because, well, Rick Smith had to win. Um, <clears throat> but you have to consider it a success just because of Deshaun Watson alone. Now, it, if we don't bring that forward and then we're just, you know, kind of, pissing into the wind and we don't do anything good with it. So what we do in this off season, we have to, we have to go out and get Andy Norwell. We have to get some cornerback help. We have to get some help, additional help on the offensive line. So it depends on what we actually do with Watson as far as what you're carrying on that success. And I think that's just super important. 
And considering Brian Gain is such an unknown, of course, Rick Smith was so erratic, we didn't really actually know what his plan ever was. So um, I think that, you know, we can, we can look back, you know, go through the free agency, go through the draft and see kind of what's going on and see if we're making the changes we need to make, Matt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're a success, and it's just because Deshaun Watson – I look at franchise Corbett looks to be, you know, really great. And that's something Houston's been searching for since 2013. And uh, they have that part. And that's the easiest part. Once you have that part, yeah, building a football team is uh, is a lot easier to do. And so just because of how good watching this, the season is a success. Yep. And my, my thing has also always been like, you know, just a dichotomy of pure – you know, I guess scientific standpoint, it's a success if you make the playoffs or not. I think this year Texans, it really wasn't that at all. I think it was, you know, success just because of how good Watt was. Um, what do you think? What do you think was the worst offseason decision this team made this past year? In the past year, is this a trick question, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, uh, not franchise tagging A.J. Boyer, not extending him, not, not getting him to a bigger contract. Uh, look, here's the fact. We don't have a single cornerback on the team we can rely on that's currently on the roster. Kevin Johnson, we have hope. Johnson Joseph is done. Kareem Jackson has been done. Uh, that is a really big problem, and it's getting worse. You, In my opinion, you have to have three quality cornerbacks on your team if you want to be successful. Yes, you can get around it, but, you know, I'd just rather be safe than sorry. So not franchising A.J. Bouye is just a speechless disaster, Big Matt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I do think the name-redacted trade was also just so weird. And kind of again, where they made a great trade to get around the sick-round pick to increase his cap base, and they completely wasted that trade that they made by basically how they used it, where they – Send it, you know, how Prosh and Forwards, things that they could have done, you know, this year without a problem. And also, send Young Hopkins, but they could have done that regardless, anyways. And just the way the cap works is that they could have cut him June 1st and have had the same amount of cap space this year that they right now, if they compared if they traded him last year. So that cap space really only created, you know, room available for the 2017 season specifically because the cut would have. You know, evaporates contract off the books this year. For so, but that whole thing was just still just so weird that they gave around gave away a second round pick and sold it all for this really you know, kind of genius deal, only to not use it any you know helpful fashion you know whatsoever. Yeah, and put it let's put it in perspective then. So, what happens if we don't make that trade? What happens if we just cut Osweiler and we eat that money? We still have a second round pick. We still have mm-hmm. a, a a high second round pick. I mean, it, it's so important to keep how disastrous that was. If we're not going to franchise, if we're not going to use the money for anything, good. Andre House fine, but Prost really? Like we can't go out and get fifty five other fullbacks to do the same thing Prost <laughs> can do. It's it was just such an utterly ridiculous waste of a trade, a waste of an opportunity. And in the NFL, you don't have opportunities like that to keep on to a, a franchise cornerback. And yes, A.J. Bowie is a franchise cornerback and had a second round pick, a high second round pick, something we can, Hey, we can address, I don't know, cornerback offensive line. Instead, we, we, we saved uncle Bob some money. And that's just 
that's not how you're successful in the NFL. Mm-hmm. That was the team was made to save the money, but I think that was all that Trey Conner brought up after, you know. And my, my conspiracy theory for sure is that Rick Smith made that trade. Well, not that he made that trade, but he extended those players to make it look like the 2014 draft class was a lot better than it actually was. Wow, and that's not a bad one because, you know, what it turned into, and we saw we saw it happening in real time, is we, we saw a pissing contest between Rick Smith and Bill O'Brien. We saw, hey, mm-hmm. Bill O'Brien saying, hey, I wanted, I wanted to start watching game one, and Rick Smith didn't want to. And we saw this kind of backstabbing, backstabbing, bickering back and forth, which turned out to be really hard to say, between those two, like in this, especially <laughs> at the start of the season. And so – we saw the massive power struggle. We've seen the massive power struggle between those two egomaniacs for, for the past four years. And, and clearly Bill O'Brien has won out. So Bill O'Brien got the big contract and Rick Smith, well, he's going to go take care of his wife and there are worse things to do, but it's, it's, you know, wow. It, it all turned out to be a giant pissing contest and the people, you know, Bill O'Brien won, Rick Smith lost, but so did the Texans, the Texans lost too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, the whole thing was was weird. And I, I still, you'll still never know, and nobody will ever know exactly who made the decision, that decision. But it was also just so weird, just like constantly every other week, was this guy wanted this, this guy wanted this, and and those press conferences really was really weird. Who they ended up hiring, kind of you know, was strange. And I don't know, you know, they're moving forward. Uh, what was the, the kind of strange thing on this team that you saw happen this year? Like, what was the one thing? That just really kind of perplexed you. Can you uh, ask that ask that again, please? I said, what was the strangest thing this season that happened to the Houston Texans? Like, what was perplexed you the most? <laughs> Bill O'Brien's continued employment by the Texans. Boom. That's what I got. I I still don't know how that man is employed by the Texans. I don't care. I'm happy Rick Smith is gone. I still don't have any idea how anybody thinks Bill O'Brien's a good head coach. Yeah. I think you have a big sample size of what he did with Watson. Uh, But other than that, you have 30 games that say otherwise, you know. Yeah. I I don't get it. uh, Yeah. I'm done. I'm done with that. Everybody yeah. knows how I feel about it. For, I'm done with it. <laughs> For me, it has to be just how bad Kevin Johnson was this year. He was one of the worst cornerbacks in football. He couldn't tackle. He couldn't He couldn't cover uh, short passes at all. He was okay against longer stuff. But, I mean, he just he was healthy entering the year. And even when he was healthy to start the year, he was bad. He was bad whenever he came back from that knee injury he had. And the Texans needed to step up, and he did it. And so it's really hard to see what happens, you know, this year. Uh, with him, and also because he was so good his rookie year, and he was really good before he got injured his second year too. And it's my big idea for like a, a lockdown corner could break on the ball really well, and he just hasn't been able to do it. So I think it's going to be he's a player with like the most approved in this upcoming season, and I don't really get like what happened to him between you know over the course of you know, this year specifically. I, I think it's the injuries. I, I... That's the easiest explanation. He's lost his, his explosiveness. He, his quicks are gone. No more quicks. Yeah. yeah I don't know. But I see what you're saying. Uh, so my last question for you and I is where do the Texans fit in the 
hierarchy now entering, you know, the free agency is going to start here in about three weeks or so. We have them in the in the division at the moment. I think right now, so the AFC South would be, you know, of course, the Colts, the Jaguars, and the baby-eating sister Fiskers of Mesopotamia. Uh, I'm terrified of Matt LaFleur. I am uh, taking over the BESF. I think that he's just – he's been around a lot of great minds. I think he has a great idea about how to use his talent. He comes kind of from that Kyle Shanahan school, that uh, McVay school of getting a lot of easy yards and chunks, and he can do that very well. And I think just taking the handcuffs off Marcus Mariota is going to be a huge improvement. I mean, the the exotic meth mouth was kind of neat in its own little special short bus kind of way, but that's not how you win in today's NFL. I think LaFleur can win in today's NFL, and I think he can be successful, and he's just the offensive coordinator. Vrabel is who knows what kind of job, leader of men, Mike Vrabel is going to be. Uh, and they're going to soon be employing Brian Cushing, of course, because Vrabel and leader of men. Uh, but that defense, if that defense gets turned around at all, all of a sudden the, the BSS are tough. The Jaguars almost made it to the Super Bowl. And I think they're smart enough to understand what they've got with Blake Bortles, and that's scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, talent-wise, they easily have the best roster in the, NF, uh, in the AFC South, I, I think. And then you have the Colts, who are still the Colts. Uh, I think they're going to get an improvement from the coaching, but I, they, they still suck. So I think that we're, we wind up – I think that with Jacksonville's got the best talent. I think we're right around the BESFs as far as the power structure. That problem is that we have relied so heavily upon beating the Jaguars and the BSFs in order to be successful in the NFL. And, and Bill O'Brien, most of his wins are against, uh, you know, BS, BESF, start saying the word, uh, the Jaguars and the Bengals. That's where they have the most, that's where they do their damage. And I, I think that it's going to be a lot tougher to go down that road. We can no longer count on going 5-1 and one against the FC South. I think we can count on going 3-3. Three and three. And I think those are the sorts of records against our, our divisional rivals that actually hurt the team. So, uh, where do we stand in that power structure? I, I think that we're pretty mediocre, Matt. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the Jaguars are first. And I think they're also going to be, you know, it's, I don't think any regret from them at all next year because they probably should have won more games than they should have because they blew a lot of teams out, didn't win a lot of close games. Uh, they were just kind of completely dominant. Maybe with the kind of Bortles offense and if they can get better at guard. Uh, they, this all can kind of take another step as well, too. Especially if they let Borles throw the ball downfield a little bit more, and if they have Allen Robinson healthy for an entire year, will be uh, a really important part as well, too. But where I, the, from that, I have the tie times in Colts all two through four, you know, completely even. It's completely dependent on if Andrew Luck is healthy. Because if Luck is healthy, Colts have, you know, the third pick in this year's draft. They have like $90 million to spend free agency this year. They're going to have a ton of money, a ton of resources. Uh, Luck makes such a huge difference to that team. And as we've seen before, if Luck even has, you know, a bad roster, uh, they can win nine games, you know, and fight off, you know, five for 10 for a playoff. And I, I agree with what you're saying with Tennessee. I think they're still talented. I think defensively they can upgrade. They're going to be, there's going to be a huge difference. And if the floor can develop, they can see the passing game there. 
they're going to be a, a much better football team from like a performance wise. And they shouldn't have won nine games last year, but they did, and uh, and they're able to get win a playoff game. And it was it was cool what they did as far as you know, making head, head coaching change. But I think you you know purely from like what's going on right now, I think those teams are. I have Houston slightly above Tennessee and Indy. But I have together and Jacksonville is for sure the favorite right now. Correct. Forget I was on mute. Sorry. Yeah, and the other thing, the other advantage those teams have is they've got first round draft picks. Uh, they also have second round draft picks. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be able to add some talent. And if you're, I mean, honestly, if you're Indianapolis and you don't back up the truck to Andy Norwell's house, how stupid are you? Uh, if, you could say that they got so much cap space. You know, we, we were kind of talking earlier about, you know, if they take Saquon Barkley, is that a bad idea? I don't think that would be a bad idea. I think Barkley's so good. He actually, like, you know, I, I would give him give him an exception about being a high-round running back pick because I think he's going to be that freaking good. So um, this could be a team that changes really quickly because they've got the money to do so and they've got the picks to do so. Big Matt? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they're often fine. Like they, I guess they have to re-sign Haig, but Kelly's one of the best centers in football. Um, he wasn't really healthy at all last year, but if you get Norwell, your interior is good. Gaston's is as mediocre as he gets at left tackle, and if they fill in a right tackle, the offensive line could be uh, you know pretty okay in just an off season. And I think specifically they don't. I would like. I hope. I would like to see them trade down two first round picks and then try to improve the right side of their offensive line immediately. Whether they're signing normal or not, it doesn't matter. But if they say at number four, they should take us pressure or cornerback. Because they're, you know, they should be set safety. If, uh, I'm not with the league hooker there, but their cornerbacks are terrible. I think they'd be better off staying at four and selecting that instead of a, a, a nice, pretty thing, which is you know Saquon Barkley at running back. Yeah, it's it's hard to disagree with the logic of it. I just I there has never been I don't think because I've been kind of on the running backs are fungible thing probably since the early nineties, um, for, you know for so long. But I look at Saquon Barkley and even I drool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna, I want to go back and watch video on him because I see all these you know clips come on you know, the football nerds post and it's like look at Saquon Barkley not being able to read this whole. And he runs right by the wide open hole, breaks four tackles, and gains one yard when he had a touchdown there, and that sort of thing. And so, I have, some guys have him, you know, second or third uh, on their on their board. So, interesting to see what happens. I like to watch more of him, kind of come with an opinion on my own about him. But, I, mean, I, I love the running back position now as well too, but I think it's worth like using a, a 21st pick on or a 15th pick on, but not a top 10 pick on. When you're at the station, filter on. If it's more of like a, this is the last thing we need, and this will be huge to have a guy for tackles. I say, yeah, you know, draft Barkley seventh if you're uh, in the head, kind of like a strange year, maybe like the New York Giants. But I don't think it's worth it if you're team Indianapolis Colts who has other issues and holes there. Yeah, and and let's face it, the Colts are aside from a couple positions are just a giant hole. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the Colts are my least favorite team of ball, uh, but at the same time, like I still like every team a little bit. And I like Andrew Luck, and uh, and I can't believe that they they've done what they've done to him. But hopefully he's healthy, and hopefully the Colts are actually back to playing pretty mediocre football. Again. 
being mediocre football. I think that'll be the Colts. I, I just, yeah, I think they're terrible. Anyway. Yeah. Well, that's it. Do you have else for me at all? Nope. I have a angsty boy to go deal with, so I'm excited about that. <laughs> uh, so, well, thanks for being on tonight. And next week we're going to do we'll do an off-season preview show. Diehard Chris will be on the program, and we'll also talk a little bit about movies at the last, you know, like 25 minutes or whatever he wants to do. He's supposed to be not, but he has he has the flu, and uh, and so you know, some prayers to Chris wherever he is, you know, with his flu and his big <laughs> that he has. But uh, that's gonna be the plan for next week. But anyway, thank you for listening. Listen live, or if you listen recorded, it doesn't really matter. I will be back on live at 7 p.m. Central. My name is Matt Weston. Thank you for listening to Red Radio. And thank you for being on tonight, BFT. I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seemed Smart. It Seemed Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seemed smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.